God's Word. This morning we're going to look at Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. Two weeks ago we mentioned uh, that the church is the body of Christ corporately. And then last week we mentioned that God has set aside one day out of the week, the Sabbath, for His people to gather together for holy convocation. And this week we want to look at, well, what should the church be doing when it gathers together? And Acts 2.42-47 provides a profound answer to that question. Dr. Luke writes, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, once again, we open Your Word and we ask for You to send Your Spirit to give us insight. We need the Word and the Spirit to come together. And may we see clearly the truths that are on the page here. May they not just be truths on the page, though. May they become truths that penetrate our hearts. May they become truths that transform our church and ultimately our community. So, Father, I ask you to be gracious to us this morning. Give us ears to hear. For Jesus' sake, we ask this. Amen. You may be seated. Well, a couple of weeks ago, um, I received a phone call, and it was uh, just sheer delight. Uh, A friend of mine from about almost... 30 years ago, uh, which means a friend of mine from the days when I was a non-Christian, living like a non-Christian sinner, need I say more, uh, called me up and he said, "Um, I would like you to baptize me. And I was just taken back and I, I said, well, why do you want to be baptized? And he said, I want to seal the deal. And we talked about the gospel and we talked about what baptism means. And I, I said to my friend, I said, it would, it would be an honor and a, and a privilege for me to baptize you. But I really think your pastor should be the one to baptize you. Well, what is baptism? Uh, too often we, we limit the meaning of baptism to identifying with the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And of course that is included in baptism, but it involves so much more than that. Baptism also is a picture of repentance and faith in Christ. In Acts 2 we see that those who repented were baptized, continuing on really the message of John the Baptist. Um, But adding to the message of John the Baptist, they also express faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, Baptism also 
uh, is a picture of cleansing from sin, washing away of sin and defilement. According to Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27, uh, which is an Old Testament passage, but it describes the new covenants. It talks about that when we are cleansed with water, when we are sprinkled with water, that's an indication that we are cleansed from sin and idolatry, that we are given new hearts and a new spirits, and that we are given the Holy Spirit to reside within us, which means we now have the power to walk according to the commands of God, because now the law of God is written on our hearts. And we saw two weeks ago that in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, uh, spirit baptism is a work of the Holy Spirit whereby we are baptized into the Spirit and into the body of Christ, the church. And of course, water baptism is supposed to correspond to spirit baptism and to be a picture of that. So, baptism relates directly to the church. Uh, what God is joined together, we must not separate. Baptism and church membership are really two sides of the same coin. And of course, we could also say that baptism indicates a decisive turning away of the old life. We could even say turning away from the old kingdom, the kingdom of darkness, and entering into the kingdom of light, the very kingdom of Jesus Christ. And we do that by going through the waters of baptism. The Israelites entered into the promised land uh, through the waters of the Red Sea. We enter into the new land through the waters of baptism as well. And for some people in certain countries to go through baptism uh, was very traumatic, even life-threatening. Many of you know that in Muslim countries, uh, when Muslims, for example, convert to Christianity and are baptized, they are disowned by their families and even in danger of martyrdom on many occasions. Uh, one of my professors from, from college, uh, Dr. Lewis Goldberg, um, a Jew who came to faith in Jesus Christ, was baptized expressing his faith in Jesus Christ and was as a result of that disowned by his family. And as far as I know, um, he never was reunited with his family um, forever. There was a separation because of his faith in Jesus Christ. Now, for us in America, it's usually not that traumatic. Uh, yet at the same time, it is, it is very exciting. Um, and I told my friend, let me know when you're going to be baptized. Um, I'd like to get away and I, I would really like to be there for you uh, and experience the occasion. Um, this summer, we're going to have a baptism, uh, at least one, Lord willing, many more. Uh, but Carol Kennedy is going to be baptized. Uh, as far as I can remember, yeah, you can applaud that. <laughs> um, as far as I know, Carol Kennedy is the only person in the history since I've been here that, uh, of the church that we've allowed to become a member without being baptized first. We made an exception because she said she wants to be immersed in the back pond. And this, this time of the year is not the best time for having a baptism. Uh, so we're going to wait for probably at least July so the water can really warm up. And that will be a tremendous celebration. I've been looking forward to it for months and continue 
to look forward to it as, as Carol does as well. But again, baptism and church membership go together. Uh, you'll notice in Acts 2 that 42 begins with the word and. I know some translations don't have that, uh, but it is there in the original Greek text, uh, which tells us that it's a continuation of what took place previously. And what took place previously was the baptism of 3,000 souls who are now gathering together as a church. Uh, if you want the broader context of chapter 2, it's actually quite fascinating. I, I like the three-point outline that uh, the late John Stott provides. He says in verses 1 through 13, we have the events of Pentecost. Uh, the fulfillment, really, of the prophecy given by John the Baptist. You'll recall that when he was ministering, uh, people asked him if he was the Christ, and he said, no, I am not the Christ. He said, I baptize you with water, but one is coming after me who is more powerful than I am, whose sandals I am not even worthy to untie. He will baptize you with what? With the Holy Spirit and fire. And at Pentecost, here we have the baptism of Holy Spirit indicated by tongues of fire resting on the disciples. Stott says in verses 14 to 44, we have Peter, uh, Peter preaching and he gives the explanation of Pentecost. They're wondering what's going on. Are, are these Christians drunk? No, it's only nine o'clock in the morning. Give them a little bit of a doubt. And then he says, no, this is what Joel predicted would take place. That in the last days, I will pour out my spirits on all flesh. That's what's taking place. And that's interesting because in verse 38, Peter says to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So it's as if Peter is saying, what you're watching is a mighty, powerful, unprecedented work of God. All the prophets in the Old Testament have been looking forward to the confirmation of this new covenant with the coming of the Spirit. And I want you to know that if you will repent, you also can join in and be a part of Pentecost and receive the Holy Spirit yourself. And many did repent. Verse 41 says, So those who received His Word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now, much could be said, but notice that they were added that day. Added to what? Added to just this, the individual number of Christians who are saved? Or is it more precise than that? It's more precise than that. They were added to the church. What did Jesus say to Peter in Mark, or excuse me, Matthew 16, 18? You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And we also have the fulfillment of that. Here we have Peter preaching his first quote-unquote Christian message. And what happens? 3,000 come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And the church by Peter is being built up, just as Jesus said it would. So they are being added to the church. And then the third point that Stott gives is in verses 42 to 47, he says, we have the church's life the effects 
of Pentecost. So the Holy Spirit is poured out. That's Pentecost. Peter explains what's happening, how they can join in. And then in 42 to 47, we have the effects of the Holy Spirit being poured out on believers. And what happens, just very simply, what happens is the Holy Spirit gathers together all the believers so that they can have all things in common. Verse 44, and all who believed. That seems to imply there's no exceptions from this previous group of 3,000 people. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. So again, I just, I just want you to note very carefully that God is building His church. He's saving people and almost at the same time, no, at the same time, bringing them into the church, adding them to the number of the church. And I'm stressing this ad infinitum, ad nauseum, because we live in such an individualistic age where we think it's just me and Jesus. Me and Jesus. I have a personal relationship with Jesus, and we think we don't need the church. But when the Holy Spirit works mightily, the very first thing He does is bring His people into the church. Which makes us question whether or not He's working in the lives of some people. I know that's a strong statement, but we see right here in Acts when the Holy Spirit works and brings people to repentance and they're baptized because they really do believe the very next step they take is church membership. They enter into the door of the church and they say, okay, I want to be a part of this church. That's very important. Now, let me, let me ask you this question. Let, let's say you had a friend from 30 years ago. I know some of you weren't alive then. Uh, well, let's say you had, you had a friend from year, years ago, and they were to ask you this question. I'm a, I'm a Christian now. What do I need to do to grow as a Christian? What do, what do I need to do? And remember, I'm just, I'm just a new Christian, so please don't, you know, don't hand me Wayne Grudem's systematic theology. Go and read this. Okay. I, I need it simple. Can you just give me like two, three, four bullet points? What? What advice would you offer? Go ahead. What, what advice would you offer? Join a, Join a church. Thank you. You've been paying attention. <laughs> Join a church. Okay. What else? Read your, Read your Bible. Very good. What else? Pray. Pray. Very good. What else? Be baptized. Very good. What else? Take communion. Take communion. Very good. What else? Have faith. Have faith. Continue on in your faith. Very Very good. You know, we don't have to guess what God would say to this question. Because in verse 42, um, we are told what the early church was devoted to in order that they could grow. Look at verse 42. And they devoted themselves. I'll, I'll, let me stop you right there. Some of your translations say, and they continued steadfastly. Uh, that's an okay translation as well. The idea here is ongoing, continuing devotion, steadfastness, earnestness. And I'm stopping you right here because I think this is very profound. When we read, as, as soon as the New Testament church is put together, right away we're told, and when they gathered together on the Lord's Day, this is what they were committed to. This is what they did. I hear that. I say, wow, what did they do? Because this is what we need to do. And what do we read? 
and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Let me just give you a quick summary, and then we'll tear these apart. But first of all, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. At this point in time, there were no written gospels. There were no written uh, epistles. No Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. At this point, Paul's not even converted yet. So, of course, he couldn't write them. Um, which means they could only get the teaching through the apostles. And, of course, they, they taught from the Old Testament. But surely they also said, and we remember when Jesus did this. And we remember when he said this. And now we understand what he was talking about. Boy, back then we were a bunch of blockheads. We had no idea what he was talking about. But now we understand the implications. Let me tell you the implications of what Jesus meant in the Sermon on the Mount. So in order for them to get that teaching, they they had to come to the church and listen to the apostles. Uh, Fellowship. Again, we'll talk about this more later. Where do you get fellowship? Are, Are Christians sitting at home on their couch watching TV, Christian TV this morning, enjoying fellowship. That, that is not fellowship. Fellowship is at the very least getting together with other believers, which means, again, you have to come to church. Uh, they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread, the breaking of bread. And here, this, this is communion. This, this is the Lord's Supper. Can you do this by yourself? You can, but you shouldn't. <laughs> because communion is something that you do with other believers. The one loaf, as we say many times, uh, indicates that we are one body. It's a meal that we are to share together. This can only be done at the church. And then finally, and they were devoted to the prayers. Can you pray at home all by yourself? Well, of course you can. But technically here, what we have is they devoted themselves to the Prayers. Um, the, the article, the, is in the Greek text. Some translations just say prayer. And I mention that because there's differing opinions on, on what this means. But when it says they were devoted to the prayers, probably is a reference to the prayers taking place in the church. And I just mention that because as you look at these, what I'm calling the four pillars of the church gathered, Uh, The apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread. As you look at these four items that the early church was devoted to, they only could happen in the church. What they were devoted to here could only happen in the church, which meant that they had to come to church, which means if you want to grow as a Christian, you have to come to church, and then the church as a whole needs to be committed to these four pillars. So at the very least, and I'm not saying this is all the early church did, this is not all the early church did, but what I'm saying is when the church was gathered, this is what they were devoted to. Now, I intentionally say the church gathered because the church scattered is something else. When the church scatters, it goes out into the world to evangelize, uh, to minister to the community, to help the, the homeless, widows, orphans, there's There's a hundred thousand needs out there. The church goes out and it ministers to the world. But I'm talking specifically about the church gathered. And I believe that's the focus here. Um, And that's important because we'll talk about evangelism uh, towards the end a little later. But this is what the early church was committed to when they came together. Now, let's look at each of these. Number one on the list. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. 
Why is this mentioned first? Well, you got to start somewhere. Uh, this is mentioned first. Order of importance in the Bible is is important. Uh, the fruit of the Spirit is what? Number one. Love. Why is that put first? Because that's the most important thing in the Christian life. Order in the Bible is very important. This is put first because it's important. If, if we don't have teaching... We don't, we don't know what real Christian fellowship is. If, if we don't have teaching, we don't, we don't understand what communi- communion is supposed to significant, significance, what the significance of it is, excuse me. And if we don't have teaching, we don't know what to really pray for. So, teaching comes first. Now, I want you to notice that to be a spirit-filled Christian, you need to be a word-filled Christian. This is, this is very important because we have, you know, we talk about churches that focus on the Word over here and we have churches that focus on being filled with the Spirit over here. And, and I want to say that is the dichotomy you don't see in Scripture. And actually, to be Spirit-filled is to be Word-filled and to be Word-filled is to be Spirit-filled. And let me give you just two passages to help you see how these come together. Ephesians. 5.18 Ephesians 5.18 And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Thank you, Norbert. And when a person is filled with the Spirit, what does that look like? We're told. Addressing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always to the Father for everything, to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's what a Spirit-filled Christian looks like. Now turn ahead past Philippians to Colossians. Colossians three, sixteen. And 17. And what you'll notice when we bring these two, two passages together is that you can almost put them right on top of each other. And, and you can use spirit-filled and word-filled interchangeably because the results are identical. Colossians 3.16 Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Here it's not be filled with the Spirit. Here, here it's be filled with the Word of God, in other words. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Friends, a Word-filled Christian is a Spirit-filled Christian. So if you want to be filled with the, with the Spirit, and you do, open up the Word of God. Ask God to speak to you through His Word. Ask God to transform you through His Word because the Word and the Spirit, as we talked about in Sunday school, come together. Again, let us not separate what God has joined together. Now, teaching is so important and we could have a whole message on doctrine. But let me just say, and I've said these things before, but I'm going to say them again. Because they're very important. Doctrine is important. I am not into doctrine because I'm some 
ivory tower academician. I'm into doctrine because I'm a pastor and I minister to people. I do their funerals. I, I visit them in the hospital. And I can't tell you how heartening it is when I, when I visit someone in the hospital and they say, Pastor, I know I'm here because this is God's will. I, I can't tell you how blessed I am. I'm like, yes. They get it. They get it. Maybe they can't give you the systematic theology definition of sovereignty, but they get it at a practical level where they, this is not an accident. God is in control of my life, my cancer, my illness, my hernia operation didn't catch God, you know, off. He, he wasn't over here working on some Middle Eastern countries that are having struggles and forget about me. This is ordained by God. This is part of God's plan. And they're finding comforts in that. I'm like, yes. And, and when, I, when I see that, I want to say to the whole church, you see what's happening right This is why I preach on the sovereignty of God. Amen. So that when they're laying on the hospital bed, they can know that this is part of God's plan. We, we could talk about children. We did talk about children at our, at our men's study. And many of us said, you know what, years ago, we, we had a terrible doctrine of children. We did. We had terrible. We we didn't understand what God said about children. And and, and Matt shared a great story. He mentioned uh, when he was in school, maybe it was seminary. I remember it was his counseling class. Uh, his professor had ten kids, and he said one day one of the students uh, asked about why he had so many kids. And I said, "What did that happen like on the second day?" And he said, "No, it was the first day." <laughs> and I said, "Yeah, I should have guessed that the very first day." Uh, why do you have so many kids? And he read from Psalm 127. Children are a heritage from the Lord. They're a reward. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. And his professor said, children are a blessing. And we believe that God hasn't changed. Uh, from the Old Testament, going past that blank Page that separates the Old Testament. God hasn't changed. He's the same God. Children are so a blessing. And, and some of us admit we didn't understand that. But some of us understood later in life. And because of that, there are children in this room right now who otherwise wouldn't be here. Except God opened our eyes and gave us a better understanding of children. I'll just give you one more example. Election. Now, just about everybody agrees, boy, if you want to divide a group of Christians, just, just talk about election. Right? Why, why would we get into highfalutin election? Do we really have to go? Yes, we have to go there. We really do. Paul went there. Ephesians 1. He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. Why do we preach on election? Well, it's in the Bible. Does it have any practical Relevance, it does. And again, I, I could give you examples of people who have, have said to me, that, that doctrine has just revolutionized my, my thinking and my relationship with God. And John Wilson will now tell you that one of his favorite sayings is, why me? When you understand election, when you understand before you were ever born, had done anything good or bad, God chose you. And maybe you didn't choose this person over here. And you just, you just why me? When, when that grips you, you, you are just blown away, literally, that God would set His favor upon you. 
It devastates you in a good way that God would do that. So why do I preach on election? Because I want all of you to know how loved you are of God. People come, yeah, I know God loves me. I want to say, no! (laughs) He loves you in ways that you can't even imagine. Let me help you understand how He loves you. So He outlined doctrine to help with that. Total depravity. Election. Because it really makes a difference. You know, if you were to ask me uh, what I thought the biggest problem in the church today was, this is the answer I, I would give. Poor teaching. Poor teaching, deficient doctrine. I, I really do believe that. I, I believe in, in many ways uh, we, we look like Amos. Amos 8, 11 and 12. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. Our our land is struggling, and, and I want to tell you, the problem is not primarily political. It's not with the politicians in Washington. It's with the churches. As the church goes, so goes the country. We need to understand that. And if you want me to be even more pointed, the problem is the pulpit. And the problem is the teaching in the pulpit. The problem is doctrine. That's our problem. Martin Luther said, The Word of God is the greatest, most necessary, and most important thing in Christendom. And by the way, let me, let me ask you this question. What exactly was the Reformation? What was it? Was it not simply a doctrinal recovery and doctrinal revival work of God? Isn't that what it was? Martin Luther rediscovered the doctrine of justification by faith. And he said, look at this. And he said, look at this by posting on the Wittenberg door. He said, look at this. And, and people did look at it. And, and the church was transformed by the Word of God and doctrine. On, on one occasion, Martin Luther was at what he had done to cause all that trouble in Germany, meaning the Reformation. <laughs> and he answered, I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's Word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Philip and Amsdorf, the Word of God so weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The Word of God did everything. I don't believe that's an understatement. I believe that is it. God's Word was the very foundation of the Reformation. So we should be committed to the Word of God as well. Number two, (coughs) they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship. If you only know a few Greek words, you need to know agape, which is the word for love, and you need to know the word koinonia, which means 
I guess I got to teach you. Which means fellowship. I thought some of you might know. Koinonia means fellowship. Two possible meanings that, that scholars give. Some say that koinonia comes from the Greek word koine. Um, when I took Greek, we talked about koine Greek, which just meant common Greek. In other words, it was the Greek that people spoke. When they went to the market and they got together with their friends, that was the language that they spoke. In other words, it was the common language. So koinonia is just having things in common. Uh, to help you kids understand it, to make it real simple, uh, basically, we could say it's friendship. Now, it's going to be friendship at the nth degree, but that's, that's a good starting point. It's friendship. And C.S. Lewis said, uh, if you're going to have uh, a friendship, it has to revolve around something. It can revolve around football. It can revolve around, you know, knitting. It can revolve around uh, cookies and milk. Uh, it can revolve around anything, but there's something you get together. For Christians, at the core of our friendship is fellowship with God and with His Son, Jesus Christ, and with the Holy Spirit. We fellowship with the triune God, and as we fellowship with God, um, we fellowship with one another. And that impacts our relationship. We have all things in common now, I, I think this fellowship is uh, spelled out in this passage. Look at 44. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. Now, this is not communism. Some have taken it to mean that way. This was not a forced having all things in common. All right, we're going to have all things in common. I want you to give your paychecks right here, put it all in the kitty, and then we'll just distribute. No, completely 100% voluntary and they were although I should probably clarify as moved by the Holy Spirit um, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as many had need this is fellowship true Christian fellowship is costly and I'm talking the kind of cost that comes out of your, your wallet and your back pocket or out of your purse. Um, and we see this again a little later, actually, in Acts, Acts 4.34. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands and houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. What a testimony. Not one, not a single needy person in the body of Jesus Christ. Isn't that not a powerful testimony? They, they sold, I mean, can you believe it? If it wasn't here, we probably wouldn't believe They sold their houses. Just once before I die, I would love to experience a Christian selling their house so that they could give the money to a ministry or to help with needy people. That's, that's incredible. It's one of the reasons why we're going to have a deacon's fund next week so we can help people in the church. It is our obligation. That's what it means to have all things in common. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. If you had a biological brother or sister, given the fact that they were responsible and were falling on financial hard times, would you not help them? You know what? Water is thicker than blood. 
I'm talking about the water and baptism, is thicker than blood. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are one family. And if we had that perspective, we wouldn't just cling to our stuff. This is my house. This is my stuff. We would be happy to help our brothers and sisters in need. Another possible meaning um, has to do with partnership. And the word koinonia um, also has been carried over directly uh, from the secular business world of the first century. And it refers to those who are in business together. It refers to financial partners. Uh, so to be in a koinonia means you were, you were business partners and you were both financially invested. And, and I believe this meaning of koinonia comes out in Philippians. Uh, Philippians, as you may know, uh, was basically Paul's thank you letter to the Philippians uh, for their financial underwriting of his ministry. That's, that's basically what Philippians is. And in Philippians 1.3 we read, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership koinonia in the gospel from the first day until now. So when Paul says, because of your partnership in the gospel, because of your fellowship in the gospel, what does he mean? He means, to put it bluntly, because they gave him money so that he could do the work of ministry. And at the end of the letter, he comes back to this again. In Philippians 4.10, right at the end of the letter, he says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Now that I am speaking of being in need, or excuse me, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secrets of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet... It was kind of you to fellowship with my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into fellowship with me in giving and receiving except you alone. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I am seeking the gifts, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice accepting and pleasing to God. Paul loved the Philippians because of their partnership in the gospel, because they financed his ministry. And he says, I I thank you. And he says at the end, I'm not saying this because I'm trying to get something. God will take care of me. But thank you. You showed concern for me. And you will be blessed because of it. Think of what a testimony that is to those outside the church. I, I love to say to those who call the church looking for financial help, and they call all the time. They called yesterday. There was a call this morning. I love to say we take care of those in the church first. And I've even heard, this is rare, but I've even heard, oh, that's good. That's what the church should do. That's a tremendous testimony. Chrysostom, uh, one of the early church fathers, said about this passage, This was an angelic commonwealth 
not to call anything of theirs their own. Forthwith the root of evils was cut out. None reproached, none envied, none grudged, no pride, no contempt was there. The poor man knew no shame, the rich no haughtiness. What a great statement. May God help our church to be like that. Um, And quickly, um, the early church was devoted to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread. And I wonder, someone mentioned communion. I don't know who that was, but um, often when I ask, uh, what four disciplines would you suggest to a new believer to help them grow? Um, It is very rare um, that I hear communion suggested, um, which means we don't really think that communion is one of those essential elements to help a believer to grow in the faith. And we have to ask why that is. And once again, I have to say it's because of deficient theology, maybe reactive theology. Uh, many react to Roman Catholicism. Where they teach that during the Mass, which they call uh, the bread and the wine is represented, and they believe that it is literally turned into the body and blood of Christ right there on the spot. So that when you receive communion at the Catholic Church, you are literally eating and drinking the body of Christ. Uh, Lutherans believe something very similar. Um, They're only difference, and I won't get into all the technicalities, but they believe you are partaking of bread and wine as well as the literal body and blood of Christ at the same time. So in the bread Lutherans teach, it's called trans, or, uh, consubstantiation, they believe that the bread is surrounded around, in, through, I forget how it goes, with the very body of Christ. And some of you will recall Luther saying, this is my body. He was insistent on that. Jesus said, this is my body, and he took it literally. Um, We do not believe that. Many have reacted to that. That's not what communion is. We're we're not engaging in cannibalism here. That's not what we're doing. And the pendulum has swung too far to the Zwinglian view, which simply put is also called a memorial view, uh, which many of you probably were taught in your evangelical churches, uh, which means we do this, in remembrance of Christ. And I agree with that wholeheartedly. We certainly observe communion to do that in remembrance of what Christ did for us on the cross. But that's all it is. It's just something we do to remember what Jesus has done for us. Um, A middle road, and I want to suggest to you a biblical road, is the uh, Reformed view, which talks about the spiritual presence of Christ. We don't believe that he's physically, bodily present. We believe his bodily presence is in heaven. Nor do we believe that this is just a memorial, time to remember what Jesus did for us. And we have bread and wine as kind of little helps in this. We don't believe that it's just that. We also believe that it really is communion. That we do take literally. We are literally communing with Jesus Christ at the table. We believe that He is spiritually present, that He is spiritually nourishing us and building us up, which is why we refer to communion as well as baptism as a sacrament. We believe that something really is happening 
it's not just all smoke and symbolism. Something substantial, spiritual, and real is taking place. And, and I think you can see that if it's just something to help you remember the death of Christ, I think you can see why it really doesn't matter if we don't celebrate it that often. But if you really do believe, this, this is communion with the living Christ, you want to do this. And you naturally would ask the question, well, why don't churches do this more? And I've said this before, I think the early church was centered on communion. And as a reference point, I gave you Acts 27, which says that they gathered together on the first day of the week to break bread. That was the one out of the four that was central. And, and these days, many of you know that there's a lot of talk about the church being cross-centered, Christ-centered, gospel-centered. And I say yes and amen. And I also want to say, well, how can we do this? Yes, in our preaching. But I also want to say, isn't this one of the reasons that Jesus Christ has given us the sacraments of communion? So that each and every Sunday when God's people gather together, the climax of the service would be at the Lord's table and we would keep His atoning death central. We would keep the gospel central. We would remember, we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for the cross of Jesus Christ and what He did for us. And could it be that that's what God has ordained to help His church stay on track and to keep the gospel centered? And I want to submit to you that I really do believe that that is the case. So, so they were committed to breaking bread. And finally, the prayers. Uh, of course, there's a lot we could say about prayer. Um, and, and let's just be honest. Let's not pretend like we have it all together. Um, there's a lot more that we could and should be doing as a church to grow as a praying church. Uh, but at the very least, um, I want to ask all of you uh, to be praying at home specifically for the church. And you might say, well, what specifically should we be praying for? Let me just read three passages, one right after the other. Uh, this is the Apostle Paul asking for prayer uh, and see if we might not get any help from Paul on what we should be praying for directly related to the church, what we should precisely be praying for. Colossians 4, verses 2 to 4. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am a prisoner, that I may make it clear, which is what I'm supposed to do. What did, what did Paul want prayer for specifically there? Open a door for the word and pray that I would proclaim it clearly so, so people can understand what I'm talking about. Even the kids who are listening. Philippians, or excuse me, Ephesians 6, 18 to 20. Comes at the end of that great passage on spiritual warfare. Paul says, Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also pray for me. Right, right in there, Paul interjects, you know, and, and pray for me. Could you, could you pray for me? 
Well, Paul, what do, you, what do you want us to pray for you? Do you have a specific request? Paul, yes, I do have a specific request. And pray for me that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Help me to be bold. Paul was a coward at times. How can you say that about our beloved Apostle Paul? Well, he said, pray that I proclaim it boldly. What does that imply? He needs help from God because he, he could shrink back. Pray for me so that the word would go forth. Second Thessalonians 3.1 Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of God may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. We could paraphrase this. Pray that the Word of God would run rapidly without hindrance and be glorified. Pray for me so that the Word would go forth. And then we see the early church and in, in Acts 4, we see the church gathered together. They're having a prayer meeting because persecution is uh, ready to come upon them. And they're, and they're praying. And what, what are they praying for? Acts 4.29 And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. God answered their prayer. He poured out the Holy Spirit so they could proclaim the Word of God with boldness. So very practically, I want to ask you, if you can't make it to the prayer meeting this Wednesday, at home, pray for the church, pray for the leaders, and pray specifically for the Word of God. That it would go forth boldly, clearly, powerfully, Because Satan will do everything he can to stop it. Pray that it will spread rapidly. Because when it goes forth, who knows what may happen. Another reformation will happen. At the very least, let's pray that God would bring about a mini-reformation because of the Word going forth with great power. Now, just to conclude real quickly, um, we're told in 46 that day by day, tending the temple gathering and breaking bread in their homes, they receive their food with glad and generous hearts. This, this was a happy church. This was a church full of joy. And that's, that's important as well. Let me just throw out another quick application here. Do your God-given best to come to church happy. You say, well, what if it's been a terrible week? Do your God-given best to come to church happy. I'm not saying pretend to be something you're not. I'm saying do your best to come to church, to minister to people. Look look at those around you. When you sing this morning, when when you say the call to worship, when when you recite the creed, when, when you say that, I want my kids who are listening to all of you, I want my kids to say, you know what, Dad? We go to a church where people love Jesus Christ. And I want to be able to say, well, what makes you say that, son? They just sing out. 
They just love to praise God. And I really think they mean it when they say the creed. I think they really do believe in Jesus Christ. They really do believe that God sent them for our salvation. And we're told in Scripture to sing to God and we're told to sing to one another. We have a responsibility. Many people this morning, I'm, I'm sure, were down for a number of reasons. We had an obligation to help lift them up by just singing. By just welcoming and just, just singing and, and saying through our song and our loud, joyful recitation of the liturgy that we go through. Isn't God great? And perhaps God used that to say, you know what? He is. I got sidetracked and I got my focus all wrong, but He is. I can tell now that I've come to church and gathered together with all of God's people. He is a great God. And if that would happen, even those outside the church will say, you know what? I think He's a great God. They, they have something that I don't have. They have a joy. They have a love. They have a, a confidence. They have a sacrificial spirit. They have a generosity that I have never seen anywhere. What's going on? i got to find out. And I find it interesting that this passage ends by saying, And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And all the commentaries I read, and it's not like I've read every single commentary out there, but all the commentaries I read on this passage talked about evangelism. And I know why they talked about evangelism, because they want to tell their church that we need to evangelize. And I admit, I'll say the same thing they are. No doubt the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved because they were going forth. Because they were talking to their friends and their relatives and their co-workers. And they were saying, i got to tell you about what's happened in my life. i got to tell you about Jesus of Nazareth. Maybe you heard about what He has done in Jerusalem. i got to tell you, it's all true. And I admit, I think all that is implied. But it's implied. It's not stated. And I mention that only because it could be that one of the lessons here is if the church will simply... Be the church. If the church will simply do and be devoted to what God is calling it to do, God would honor that and bless that and it would grow. I'm not saying this is to be separated from evangelism. Of course, we are to fulfill the Great Commission. We're going to mention that in just a minute. But perhaps the lesson is that the world will see something that they've never seen before. You know, let me, let me close by telling you about my friend, um, when I said your your pastor needs needs to baptize you, I, I said, are you attending a church? He said, I'm not going to church. I said, you need to find a church. I said, can you get a phone book? And he got a phone book from his area and he mentioned a church. And I, I said, no. He mentioned another church. I said, no. He mentioned another church and he said it was really close to his house. I said, yeah, that that sounds pretty good. Why don't you go there Sunday and let's, let's just see what happens in it. And if that doesn't feel right, um, we'll find another one. I said, I, w- I want you to call me next week. And I want you to call me for a couple of reasons. Number one, I want you to call me for accountability. And I want you to call me for encouragement. Well, I got a call Tuesday morning. He called me from his car. Um, actually, I thought he was floating on clouds. He said it was great. He, he said, I'm still excited from what I experienced Sunday. I'm even telling my agnostic friends about how great church is. It was wonderful. It was so great. He said, I brought my Bible. 
He said, I looked at it. It's 35 years old. He said, I brought my Bible. He said, the pastor spoke from Mark 9. He said, I was following along and it was, it was right out of the Bible. I said, oh, that, that's a good sign. It was right out of the Bible. And he was speaking right to where I was living. He was talking about what I was feeling. And he was just floating. He, he just says, great. And he, they called me Wednesday. He said, the church got back to me. He, he got back to me. And, and they're willing to baptize me like I want to be baptized. And he said, I really think this is the church. I just feel so good about this church. I said, yes, Lord. You know what I'm thinking, right? Yes, Lord. Because this is what he needs. If he can be connected to a church... And if week in and week out, the pastor can open up God's Word and then he can open up for himself and he can fellowship with good, some good believers and be encouraged, who knows where he may be? That's what we need. It's, it's not rocket science. We've made church so complicated. It's really very simple. If we just listen to what God has to say. And who knows where people would be? Who knows what God would do among us if we would just be committed to these pillars. Let's close in prayer. Father, again, we thank You for Your Word, how lost we would be without it. Thank You for the light that it shines on the path as we continually think about going forward and and what we need to do. Father, it's very clear from this passage where we need to start, where we need to be strong. Father, help us as a church to be devoted individually and corporately to your teaching, to the fellowship, to one another. Father, may we really see that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Father, help us to get beyond our our self-centeredness. Father, help us to be so radical that we would we would sell items that we own to help our brothers and sisters in need. Father, be with us. As we pray to You, we ask that You would answer our prayers. And even right now, as we prepare to come to the table, we ask that You would once again meet with us and build us up and unite us not only to Yourself, but to one another. Amen.